Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. I know we have several visitors. We're glad that you're here. I do want to let you know, and you will be uh, made aware of this several times before it happens, but we will have two services on October the 20th. We'll do our concurrent service schedule. We'll talk more about that as it gets closer. You'll see that in the bulletin and you'll hear it announced, but uh, that is homecoming weekend. We always have a big crowd that day. We are right on the verge of whether to have two services or not. We're right there, and so uh, definitely on special dates, we will be doing that, and that'll be one of them. So mark that down, October the 20th. We're glad you're here. You know, anytime I do a, a funeral service or anytime I go to a funeral, I picture myself in the casket. And I know that sounds like a very morbid thought, but I do. And I would encourage every single one of you to do the same thing. I've been a part of funerals that are lively, that are encouraging, that are hopeful, that are a celebration of the life lived by the person who has passed away. When I meet with a family and I ask them to give me some, some ideas about you know, the character and the reputation, the integrity of the person who has passed away, give me a few thoughts. I've had families that, you know, we could, we could meet all day because they had so much to tell me. And unfortunately, I've met with families who almost treated the deceased like good riddance. That's sad to say, but very true. When I meet with them to ask them some thoughts about their, about their loved one that has passed away, they, they have a hard time coming up with anything good to say. Picture yourself in the casket. Picture who is there at your funeral. Picture what the preacher is going to say. Who is crying? Who is weeping? Is your leaving going to leave a hole? I realize that our lesson this morning comes from 1 Timothy 4, but I want to start in Psalm 15. And in Psalm 15, David says these words. O Lord, who may abide in your heart or in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Who walks, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. David begins with a question. It's this. Who can come into your presence? David's not asking, what do I have to do to get to heaven? David's not asking for a checklist of things to do so that he can be in heaven. No, David is asking, who can worship you? Who can come into your presence in worship who is qualified to do that because David recognizes that God is above all, over all, in all, that he is so far above David that David knows he cannot stand. And so he asks, what's it going to take to be in your presence? And the rest of this psalm is an answer to that question. It's a beautiful psalm, and the short answer is who can be in your presence? The short answer is a person of integrity. Some explorers were uh, sailing and they came to these five 
islands. One island was bigger than the other four, and they, they land on, on the first island, and they notice nothing but poverty, underfed children. There was warring between tribes. It was an awful, desolate, sad place. The explorers move on to the next island in the same thing. And the next island and the next island, all they saw was malnourished people, people who were oppressed, living in poverty, people who were at war with one another. It was a sad, gloomy state of affairs. So finally, these explorers land on the bigger island, and they see the exact opposite. I mean, everyone was healthy. Everyone was happy and cheerful. There was a, a bountiful crops there was great leadership. It was a vibrant place. You could just sense that something was different about this place. And so the captain of the explorers asked to meet with the, the, the tribe chief. And he does, and he asks him, so how is it that you guys are thriving and the rest of the islands are in such a poor state? And the chief says, it's all because of Mr. Benjamin. And the the captain says, well, well, can we see Mr. Benjamin? Can we see him? And the tribe chief says, yes, follow me. And so they go over this big jungle ridge, and, and, and he takes them to this, this medical clinic that is well-staffed. There are all sorts of amenities that you would not expect on a remote island but it was a state-of-the-art medical facility for this remote island out in the middle of nowhere. And the captain of the explorers says, well, this is great, but we'd like to see Mr. Benjamin. Can we see him? Can we meet him? And so the tribe chief confers with a couple of tribesmen, and he says, follow me. And so they, they walk by the seashore, and the chief takes them to these canals that have been built by the people so that when the ocean tide comes in, they close them off, and they're able to gather all these fish, and there's plenty to eat. And the captain of the explorers says, that's, that's an engineering marvel. That's amazing that you did this. And the tribe chief says, yeah, it was all because of Mr. Benjamin. And the captain says, yes, you, you keep mentioning his name, but I don't see him anywhere. Can we see him? And so the, the chief takes him to, uh, up on, high on a mountain, and, and there's this beautiful chapel. The grass roof, but a gorgeous, pristine chapel. And he takes him inside, and he, and he shows him around, and he said, this is, this is where Mr. Benjamin, where he lives. This is where he worships. And the captain says, you keep mentioning his name, but I don't see him anywhere. Can I talk to him? Can I meet him in person? And the, the chief of the tribe looks at his tribesmen, and they seem confused. And he said, well, that would be impossible. And the captain says, why? And he said, be because he's been dead a long time. And he said, well, you, you told me that Mr. Benjamin lives here and, and you know, he worships here, all this kind of stuff. You, you told me all this about Mr. Benjamin, but you never said anything about his death. And the chief said, you didn't ask about his death. You asked where he lived. And this is where he lives. You know, I think it would do us all well as Christians to consider our life in light of eternity. Consider our life through the filter of death. 
where do you live? I know you live on a certain street in a certain house, but, but where do you live? Where do you live when you're gone? Will the people who knew you best know where you live? Will they see it in your children? Will they see it in that pew that you sat in faithfully every Sunday and Wednesday? Will they see it in the lives of the people that you touch? Will they see it in that old tattered Bible that you carried around for years that was marked all up? Will they see where you lived? Maybe you think about this in a different light. Think about it in the respect that Maybe you don't die, but you you leave here. Maybe you leave Abilene. Will this church miss you? Will this community miss you? Will you be missed when you're gone? Will you leave a hole that is hard to fill? We've got to make it count now. So that when we leave, whether it's by death or a move or whatever, that people feel the impact and hopefully try to fill in that hole with the same kind of character and integrity that we had. You know, so many people live and die and never ask why. Not us. Not Christians. That's not how we live. We live with hope and we live to make a difference. We live to make it count. I'm not telling you anything new when I say this, but you've all been given a life. And your life is very unique to who you are. You won't bump into yourself on the street. You are who you are, and it's very unique to your identity. You're not a a jacket that can be hung up in a storeroom and recycled. You are who you are, and you are born with an expiration date. And when that expiration date will come due, nobody knows, right? So you've got to make it count now. You live your life in such a way that you outlive it. I want to ask you a very pointed question this morning, and it's a question that I want to resonate with you, not just go in one ear and out the other, one that you take with you, not just today, but the rest of this week and the rest of your life. And here it is, very simply, does your life matter? Does your life matter? Does it matter? Are you making an impact on those around you? In 2 Chronicles chapter 21, we read of an evil and wicked king by the name of Jehoram. He was a wicked king, no further abusing his powers. As he ascended to the throne, he killed his brothers and many of the princes of Israel. All you really need to know about Jehoram is found in verses 10 and 11 where it says, So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. At that time, Libna also revolted from his rule because he had forsaken the Lord, the God of his fathers. Moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah go astray. So God eventually gets sick and tired of Jehoram's attitude and actions, and he strikes him with a disease that he suffers with for two years, and he died a painful death. But what I really want you to see is what is written in verse 20, and it says this, he was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he departed with no one's regret. No one was sad when Jehoram died. We talk about a funeral being a celebration. This one was, but it wasn't a celebration of a life well lived. It was a celebration that this guy was finally dead. 
And I think about these words and I think, will anyone regret my passing? Now, I know it's not an apples-to-apples comparison. I'm not a king. If I was, I wouldn't be an evil, wicked king. However, while I believe that my child that is sitting here this morning and my wife and my other two kids who aren't here, while I believe that they would be sad at my passing, while I believe that some of you, hopefully all of you, would be sad at my passing, I think about what kind of impact I'm making. And I want all of us to think about that as well. Will anyone regret your passing? As I said, think about it in a different sense or on another level. Think about it if, if you were no longer here at Oldham Lane, not dead, just somewhere else. Would people regret your leaving? Were you simply a pew setter and when you leave, no one even knew you left because they never knew you were here to begin with? Are you outliving yourself? So that people feel the impact of your loss. We could talk about for hours on end the wonderful men and women who have been here at Oldham Lane, who have gone on before, who have blessed Oldham Lane but are no longer with us. We could go on and on about those who have left a, a long legacy for us to learn from and to, and to get caught up in, right? But let's think about something here. It's not just the preachers and teachers it's not just the missionaries who've decided to give up the creature comforts of this world and to go and live in a third world country. It's about those behind the scenes people. It's about those secret servants that maybe we didn't even realize the full scope of their impact. But God did. And as long as God notices, that's all that really matters anyway, right? It's those people who wrote cards to those who were homebound. Those people who called them on the phone and just wished them well. Those people who went and visited the sick. Those people who took them a meal. Those people who did all the work behind the scenes that no one really knew that they did, but it got done and we took it for granted. It's about those folks as well. It's kind of like John Brody, who used to play for the San Francisco 49ers many years ago. John Brody was a multi-million dollar athlete that never set foot on the field except for one time, when it was time to kick a field goal or an extra point. That's the only time he got on the field, and he would hold the ball for the kicker. Multi-million dollar athlete that never got to play except to hold the ball when the kicker kicked it. And one time a reporter asked him, how is it? that an athlete that gets paid so much money is relegated to simply holding a ball. And you know what John Brody's response was? Well, if I don't do it, it'll fall over. <laughs> Love that attitude, don't you? There are many here that if you weren't holding the ball, it would fall over. And maybe people don't appreciate the impact you're making. Maybe you don't even appreciate it fully. Maybe you don't fully understand what it is you're contributing, but you're contributing something that is vital, that is worthwhile. God's servants are those that after they're gone, they leave a hole. Maybe we didn't even know that it was that person who did it. And so they leave, they pass on, and they didn't make a big production about it. And now all of a sudden we're going, well, why isn't communion prepared? Who, who used to do that? Well, the person that has passed on, and now we, we don't even realize it until the job needs to be done, right? Things that we take for granted as small, insignificant things. It's not just those that are visible and out in front. It's the secret servants, those who, who simply hold the ball. 
I think many of us need a radical shift in the way that we think. I think most people look at life through a day-to-day lens. They live moment to moment, fulfilling the needs, the demands of their schedule. Some think a little more long-term. They think about working hard so that they can build up a retirement fund so that they can quit working one day. But maybe we should think in terms of fruitful labor. Notice what Paul writes. First, or Philippians 1, we're going to get to 1 Timothy in just a moment. Philippians 1, 21 through 24, it reads, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul wanted to die. Do we? And if we don't, why not? Now, I know the answer to that question because I have the same answer to that question, right? I mean, I know why we don't want to die. But isn't that what life should be about, is getting to that point where you can say, I'm ready to die, I want to die, I want to go? Paul felt like that heaven was better, and you don't get to heaven, of course, without dying, right? So Paul felt that death was better because it meant being at home with the Lord. However, he was torn because he knew that staying here in the flesh meant that he could finish some of these labors that he needed to do. He knew that he was needed by God. And this wasn't a pride thing. This wasn't a boastful thing. This wasn't like Paul was saying, yeah, you guys need me, so I guess I'm going to stay here. No, he understood that he had work to do. Even though death would be better, to live on in the flesh would be more fruitful. Now think about what living on in the flesh would mean for Paul. More floggings, more beatings, more imprisonment. All those things that he endured for the sake of the gospel, they weren't going away if he stayed here on earth and continued doing what he was doing, right? For Paul, it was all worth it because it was a means to an end. Fruitful labor was the result, and in the end, Paul would be where it was better. In the end, he was going to pass on and be at home with the Lord. But for now, in the moment, he was intent on making his life count. I would ask you, what does fruitful labor mean for you? What will you be remembered for? Will it be being a great businessman who made some great investments? Will you be known for being a great athlete or a a great teacher? You know, great whatever it is in our society. And, And please don't get me wrong. You can do all those things and still glorify God. In fact, you should. It's not like your career and being faithful is mutually exclusive. Not at all. In fact, the two go hand in hand, right? Whatever lot in life that you are engaged in should be a ministry. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But fruitful labor means that I make my life count, that I'm here for a reason. Like Paul, I have a purpose. Godliness in all things is the goal. Here's how Paul defines it in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And I think I think that's a great goal for all of us as we look at ourselves introspectively at who we are and the life that we live. Is your manner of life worthy of the gospel? We've talked about this 
many times here in just recent weeks, but over the last several years, we've talked about this over and over again. We often say, well, has so-and-so obeyed the gospel? Obeyed is not past tense. It's, it's continuous. It's ongoing, right? You are never done obeying the gospel. You continue to obey the gospel throughout your life. Are you obeying the gospel currently in that are you making your life count? Are you living a gospel-shaped life? Be faithful unto death, it reads in Revelation 2.10. And we could add to that, let your faithfulness outlive your death. I love how the Hebrew writer states it in reference to Abel. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Did you catch that? And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. May that be said of every single one of us, right? Though he died, he still speaks. You may think I'm crazy for saying this, but Jimmy, Jimmy Jividen still speaks to me. He still does. I can pull one of his books off the shelf and I can read his thoughts. I can go on YouTube and I can watch one of his sermons. Not only listen to it, I can actually watch him preaching. I have the memories in my mind of, of being by his bed when he was at Wesley Court for a stint, being fed through a tube, and he goes, I would offer you some, but still maintaining that wit even though he was nearing the end of his life. May it be said of every single one of us that though he is dead, he still speaks. That we live a life that outlives our own selves. Wouldn't it be phenomenal if every Christian made it their goal to outlive their life? How great would that be, right? Instead of living moment to moment, day to day, we thought about our future, we thought about our integrity, we thought about the life that we were leaving, the legacy that we were leaving. You think about the impact that would have on the people around us, but on the church, on the world. I mean, I think that's one of the things that Paul was trying to get across to Timothy in his dying words. I mean, yes, Paul was giving him some final instructions, and among those final instructions were how to deal with some heresies that had reared their ugly head in the church. And Paul is telling Timothy, among other things, to you know, preach the gospel in season, out of season. We know that. He's giving him all these instructions as, as his true child in the faith, and he is passing the torch. I mean, in short time, Paul is going to be martyred. And so he is kind of laying out the final details for Timothy. So, look with me at 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 6. In fact, I'm not going to put it on the screen. I just want you to either follow along or hear the Word of God, okay? Verse 6 and following. Paul's talking to Timothy. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement, worthy of full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers." 
Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance, with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Preserve, or persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. It's everything we've been talking about up to this point, right? Live a life worthy of the gospel. Live a gospel-shaped life. And what does that look like? Well, he tells us, right? He says to be nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Be an example in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. Read, teach, and preach the word. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. And notice how Paul frames all of it. He says, for it is this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. And he says, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. How many Timothys do we have here this morning? Timothy Arliss, don't raise your hand, that's too easy. No, how many Timothys do we have here this morning? Shouldn't we all be seeking to be Timothys? And I, I realize there's role distinctions and stuff for men and women. We're not getting into all that. I'm just talking about in a general sense. Shouldn't we all be a Timothy? Shouldn't we all be seeking, like Paul is encouraging Timothy to do, to be outliving our faith, outliving our words, so that when we die, we still speak? I mean, Paul's letter could be addressed to us, couldn't it? It really could. Those words could be pinned to us just as easily today and still be applicable. Successful ministry looks like this today, just as it did back then. It looks like this. We study the truth, we stand for that truth, we teach that truth, and we live out that truth. Why? To ensure salvation both for ourselves and for those who hear, to make an impact for years to come. It's a gospel-shaped life. It's a life that counts, and it's a life that outlives us, right? You're wondering what the bucket is. Stephen Willis asked me if the pulpit was leaking. <laughs> it's a good guess. I'm going to ask one of our shepherds, James, to help me with this. I've got a chain in here, and it's a little dirty, so James, I hate that you got a suit on. You might get a little dirty. So if you want to take the end, the other end, and go down as far as you can that direction. It's a little tangled, and we're just going to lay this out. So this is a tow chain, right? And it's a very tangled tow chain. It's been used to pull some things. <laughs> that may be as good as it gets right there. So when we talk about this chain... This chain represents my life. Not only does it represent my life, it, your life is represented by a similar chain, right? It's a long, durable, heavy chain. It's used to pull stuff like our life. It is my hope 
that my life will have a pull of influence, that it will be strong enough to lift people up when necessary. And so, when we think about our legacy and the life that we're living and leaving behind, we're talking about a strong, hopefully heavy chain. And each link on this chain is represented, representative, I should say. So let's just lay it right there. How's that? Thank you, James. So mine is labeled, and yours could be too. The first link on the chain says Libby and Chris. And it has Libby first because she started all this. I wasn't a Christian when we met. So it starts with her. Instead of Chris and Libby, it says Libby and Chris. But you get the idea. The next link says Keely and Ian. That's my oldest daughter and son-in-law who are members at Great Oaks Church in in, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, who are living out this legacy of faith that we're trying to pass along. The next link is Zoe, a sophomore at Harding, who is a faithful Christian. The last link is Zane, who's here. And I hope that he will carry on this legacy as well. So far, so good. Now, the rest of the links are not labeled. Why? Well, because they hadn't come yet. I don't have any grandkids. But that's who would be next, right? And who would come after them? Hopefully, it would be my great-grandkids. And hopefully, we go all the way to the end with generation after generation that is forming strong links in this chain so that we build a legacy of faith that impacts others for however many generations to come, right? Until Jesus comes back. And I think that's what we should all be striving for is to be links in the chain. Some of you may start the links. Maybe you start the chain because you didn't come from a godly home, and maybe you're just starting out. So your chain is very short right now. That doesn't mean anything. You can still make it long and strong. Some of you may have missing links, and that's sad. It really is. It's tough. But keep building. Whether you're chain is long and strong and durable, or whether it's short and weak, it's all going to depend on you. It's all up to you. And please, please listen to me on this. Every one of you is leaving a legacy. We talk about leaving a legacy. Every one of you is leaving a legacy. You believe that? It may not be a good one. You can leave a bad legacy, but everyone's leaving something behind. So make certain that the legacy you're leaving behind is one that is long and strong, one that is durable, one that pulls through influence. It's my prayer that everyone seeks to have a life that outlives themselves. Will people miss you when you're gone? Will you leave a hole when you're gone? Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another day, for an opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the words of Paul and the other writers of of your Bible. And we pray that we can heed those words, that we can remember what it means to be a child of God who is constantly obeying the gospel who is building a faith heritage, who is seeking 
to be a strong link in the chain and develop other strong links in the chain going forward. Help us to think generationally and help us to think eternally. Help us to filter our lives through the lens of death and seek to live a life that outlasts. Thank you so much, God, for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for sending your son and for the hope that comes through him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So you're all born with an expiration date. When it's going to come due, I don't know. So you better make sure that you're ready, that you're prepared. If you're not, let us help you. There is no good reason to leave unprepared. There is no good reason to stand before our Lord on the day of judgment unprepared. So if you've got some things to work out, if you need the prayers and support of this church family, if you're ready to start your daily walk with God, if you're ready to study the Bible with someone to learn more about what it means to obey the gospel, we're ready and we're willing to help. Don't leave unprepared. David's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?